Hello and welcome to One Light, Dialogues on Religion with Dr. Farhad Shafti and your host, Veronica Polo. In this series of talks, Farhad and I discuss the role of religion and spirituality using the Islamic tradition as our framework, while simultaneously searching for universal truths that go beyond religious affiliation. Join us on our journey to untangle common misconceptions and deepen our understanding of the monotheistic tradition and beyond. Salam alaikum, everybody. So Dr. Farhad Shafti and I, Veronica Polo, are here for our, what is likely to be our concluding episode of this podcast, One Light. And we want to do it by talking about an article that I think is very important or that has impacted me deeply and that is featured on his website and that I think is sort of a culmination of Farhad's thinking and work uh, throughout the years. And the title of the article is The True Meaning of the Universality of the Quran. So we're going to sort of describe the thesis that he puts forth in the article. So my first question, Farhad, is how did this article come about in the first place? Why did you write it? Yeah, okay. So assalamu alaikum and thank you again, Veronica, for giving me this uh, opportunity. I'm very thankful to yourself for arranging and managing all these podcasts. Uh, and I'm glad that we have reached to this point where we can say that this is the last one, which means I'm not glad that it is the last one, but I'm glad that we have done so many that we can now call something as a last one. As for how I came up with this article, let me start by saying this. So if you go to this article, which you can find on my website, Exploring Islam, exploring-islam.com, and there if you go to articles, uh, you will find, it says, the true meaning of universality of the Quran, third edition. You can find it there. And when you click on that, it gives you option at the end, either to read the abridged version, which is just 10 pages, or to read the detailed version, which is 42 pages. Uh, if you look at the both abridged or detailed version, what you will find is that it starts by a series of rational questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it like this? Why is it like that? Why is it like this? Why is it like that? That is the first section. And then it starts to go to the verses of the Torah. Uh, I think I have clarified this in my detailed version that although in writing, in order to follow a logical sequence, I started with some rational questions and inquiries, and only then I looked at the verses of the Quran, actually for me, it happened the other way around, which Mm -hmm. means for me, it was the verses of the Quran that I looked at, and a number of concepts and themes and patterns came up from the Quran for me. And once I noticed those things, and I started structuring them in my mind, formulating in my mind, then I found that, oh, actually, rationally, it also makes sense, Mm -hmm. because it's a good answer, at least to me, to those questions. So it's, whenever I explain this article, or equivalent of this article for my Farsi friends, Iranian friends, Farsi language friends. 
I always like to clarify this, that, look, uh, you may see that I start with some rational arguments, but actually for me, the process started from the Quran. Also, you may find some of the things in this article, which has to do with pluralism versus exclusivism in religion. You will find these discussions have been there among the people who have written on philosophy of religion, like John Hick, for instance. Uh, however, again, as a human being, I can never deny that the knowledge that is going on around the uh, system that we are living in somehow will affect us. But as far as I can say, again, I first learned this from the Quran. It was only after that that I was discussing this with, with friends and others. And then some of the writings in philosophy of religion was brought to my uh, attention that some of them had write about similar things, not particularly about Islam, but pluralism in general in religion. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to explain that because the implication of that is that at least as far as I am concerned, I wasn't under the influence of objections to our traditional understanding of religion or Western writers, etc. It was really my understanding that I took from the Quran uh, mm -hmm. that, that was initiation of this. You know, it is easy to say that, oh, I just got this from the Quran. I wasn't influenced by anything else. It's easy to say that. But we all know that as human beings, we never can approach a text without some presumptions and some uh, thinking that is already there, some oh, yeah. framework. There's always mind. some bias. There's always yeah, some yeah, biases. Always some bias. Yeah. So I, 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 when I say I learned this from the Quran, I'm not denying the fact that yeah, I'm for sure. Things that I see around me, books that I read, videos that I watch, everything can influence my thinking, of course. But uh, at least directly and systematically learning from something, as far as I am concerned, I got this from the Quran rather than reading the book and then say, oh, let me see if I can get that from the Quran. So what is exactly that you mean by the true meaning of the universality of the Quran? What does that mean, the true meaning? Okay. Uh, so allow me uh, Veronica, to answer your question towards the end of this episode, because there's no point I go through the article one by one, page by page, when it's already there, and also because the article, in particular, the detailed version of it, is quite technical in terms of making references to the Quran and some other writings of the Mufassirs, books of exegesis, etc. Uh, there's no point going to, through that and anyway, this is a podcast. Normally in podcasts, people do not get this much technical because the audience will get tired and they find it difficult to follow. So what I will do, I want to talk about five assumptions that I think most Muslims and many followers of Abrahamic religions, and maybe even some other religions, are holding. I want to talk about these five assumptions, and I want to one by one explain for you why I think these assumptions are not true. And I think if I can manage to do that, once I finish with the fifth assumption, in a way, 
the audience will understand that what this article is trying to say. I will okay. then make some conclusions and I say exactly what you wanted me to explain, which is what is this universality of the Quran that you are referring to. Mm-hmm. So the first assumption that many of us had from our traditional education is that God only guides people by the means of prophets. And I don't think this assumption is correct. Uh, I'd remind all of us that one of the names of the Quran is Zikr. Zikr means reminder. The Quran does not claim that it is coming to give us something that we had absolutely no idea about. In fact, quite contrary, the whole religion is considered to be fitrat Allah. That nature by which fitrat Allah, that nature by which human being has been made. So it is already inbuilt in us. It only needs pressing a button for it to start moving and working. It's not about producing something. It's about growing something where the seed is already there. Now, when we read the Quran, we find that the Quran itself reminds people about other means of guidance. Um, in Arabic, they refer to it afaq and anfus. So afaq means the word around us. So in the Quran, you find many, many verses that says, you know, look at, look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the sky, look at the plants, look at the trees, and use these to make point, to remind us about many things, in particular the hereafter. In the same way, the Quran also asks us to look inside us. That is anfus, coming uh, plural of uh, nafs. Look inside your soul, you know, and deliberate, reflect on your own soul. See what are your inquiries, see what are your wishes, see your weaknesses, see your strengths. So the first assumption that says God only guide people by sending prophets, in my understanding, by the verses of the Quran itself, which is communicated to us by the prophet, is not true. God guides us by many means. One of those means, of course, is prophets, but there are also many other means. This assumption gets even, is, is we can reject this assumption even stronger by rejecting the second assumption that I'm going to talk about. So I remind you, assumption number one was God only guides people by prophets. And I said, right. by the Quran itself, we can say that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then I said, actually showing that assumption number two also is not true will further support rejection of assumption one. So what is assumption number two? Assumption number two is this one. God has sent prophets. God has sent prophets to all nations. Which is not the case, right? Or I mean, why do you think it is not the case? I mean, it might be the case. We don't know because historically there's no way to verify that. There we go. Um, you see, I, if, if we look at the history of nations other than nations in, in the part of the world where 
Islam and Judaism and Christianity came. If you look at the nations beyond that, you do not find many nations in which you may say that they had prophets. By the definition of prophet that we have in Abrahamic religions, yeah, you can you can expand the definition of prophets, and then you may say even Buddha was a prophet. You may say even Confucius was a prophet. Okay, that's fine. But that is not what this assumption is referring to. The word prophet in this assumption is by that definition of prophet that we had in the, in the Quran, which is, this is an individual, that this individual receives revelation from God, he will then have a mission, and the mission normally is to go to a community and warn that community of God's punishment, even God's punishment in this world, and trying to get that community out of that situation. And for some of these prophets who are also messengers, uh, also being the tool and the means for bringing punishment for those people who reject them in this very world. Okay? Mm -hmm. It's easy. Look at the history of the human being. I mean, we do know that historians are doing a wonderful job. It is not easily possible that something significant has happened in the history and we don't have much evidence about it. We, we know where Roman marched in Persia and where Persians marched in Rome, and we, we know all these things, right? We don't have in the history any evidence that shows something with this scale was existing among the Africans, among the Asians, other than this area where Islam and Christianity and Judaism came in China, Russia, uh, nothing in South America, as far as I know. Uh, North America, unless we believe in Mormons, who do believe that they had their own prophets. But hey, if you are Muslim, then perhaps you do not believe in those prophets. So still what I'm saying is true, not even in North America. So I emphasize again, by the definition of prophet, that we have in Abrahamic religions, history does not show us any evidence that they had any prophets. But even Mormonism is a fairly modern religion. If I think of the Americas and I think of, for example, the Amazonian people, I don't think that there was any kind of monotheistic tradition there because exactly. it was a more nature-based spirituality. Okay. I mean, monotheism, it was born from... I don't know if Hebrews would be the correct designation of the peoples, but it was the area of the Mediterranean where that way of relating to the divine was put in that framework, yeah. as far as I know. Yes, no, you're, I, I think you're right. So uh, basically what I'm saying is that if we look at the history, we'll find that beyond this area of the world uh, where we have Judaism and Islam, and Christianity rising, we really do not have any evidence of any prophets or messengers going to other parts of the world by the definition that Quran gives uh, for prophets and messengers. And the Quran itself also does not refer to any prophets or messengers that would be in, in areas other than the same area that we are talking about. Those members of the audience who know the Quran may object at this point by raising some verses of the Quran. And of course, they have every right to object. So we do have a verse in the Quran 
it is in Surah Al-Ra'ad, verse number seven, that says, إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُنْزِرٌ وَلِكُلِّ قَوْمٍ So it says to the Prophet, you are only a warner, and each nation has a God. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the objection will be, well, hang on, are saying that nations did not have Prophet, but this verse seems to suggest that. Mm-hmm. And then there are a number of other verses. For instance, in Yunus, number 47, uh, that says, ummatin rasul. Each ummah has a messenger. Yeah? And some other verses that say the same thing in, with different words. So the objection here will be, well, you're saying this, but it seems to be against what the Quran is saying. Right. So what is my answer to to these objections? I want to talk about these one by one. The one that says, every nation has a guide. So please do consider that that it says heart, which is guide, okay? Some people have interpreted this guide here to mean only prophets. Some people like Imam Tabari, for instance, if if you read the tafsir of Imam Tabari, he says guide here can be anything can be any person, any social leader, any religious leader, any spiritual leader, mm. that's a guide. So a guide does not need to be a prophet. So the first verse is not very specific about being a prophet, mm. right? Okay. And the second one that says, please do consider that it is not talking about qawm, which are translated as nation or maybe a group or tribe. It says ummah. Ummah you can translate it as community. Ummah normally is referred to a group of people who are all together following one direction, one mission. That is Ummah. It says, for every community, there is a messenger. My answer to this one is that we should not underestimate how specific the Quran is with its utterances. Quran came for people who knew Abrahamic religions. When it says, for every community there is a messenger, it is actually talking about the communities of Abrahamic religions. Two of the most important ones being Bani Israel and Ummin or Bani Ismail, the children of Isaac, the children of Ishmael. The Quran is talking about these communities. And it says all, every one of these communities has their own messengers. Because when you read the Quran, you will find that the Quran talks with a very specific utterances. We need to understand that, yes, Quran is, is coming from God, but the language of the Quran follows the language and the style that human being has. Because if it doesn't follow that language and that style, then human being will not be able to understand it. And it is within the style of almost every language that when you are talking for a particular group of people, then the words that you use will have a meaning that is specific for those people. If there are 20 people in front of you and you're teaching them, if you then say, okay, everybody, everybody, you need to follow the textbook. When you say everybody, nobody will get from that, oh, all human beings on the face of it. No, everybody in this particular class. That's the language of human being. And Quran is following the same language. So I know you have a question. I will, of course, ask you what that is, but let me summarize. So there are two verses here. 
And I said, Imam Tabari says, Hot here does not mean necessarily prophets. It means it can be other guides as well. And then, and I said, Ummah here refers to the uh, communities within the Abrahamic religions. I also argue that another way of interpreting the Kulli Qawm and is that here too, we say that Qawm or nation still refers to the nations in the Abrahamic religions because it is still talking with those people. So therefore, Hot, yes, it would mean prophets, yeah, but still here, Qawm refers to this specific um, platform that we have which is for Abrahamic religions. So at the end of the day, none of these two verses are strong evidences against what I said, that the history does not show we have any prophets other than in this region. I just looked up the word nation in the dictionary because I was just curious, because I associate nation with a more modern concept of nation state with a clear area, with boundaries, and things like that. And so when we read a translation of the Quran where it says every nation, I'm automatically envisioning a map of the globe and every nation and being able to trace some prophet. And as you said, it not that way, and it really can't be that way, just by the fact, for example, that the Americas weren't even a known continent continents at that time. I mean, we also maybe have the idea that there's some transcendent knowledge coming through that's not bound by that place and time, but it is somewhat limited to what was known at the time. So it really can't be that idea of every nation state known to man currently. It has to have been somewhat regional. And if I look it up in the dictionary, nation, uh, the definition of nation is a large body of people united by common descent, history, culture, or language inhabiting a particular country or territory. So really, it could be just about any body of people. It doesn't have to be that concept that we have nowadays. Yeah, I agree with that. Maybe, in fact, I think the word nation does the job here, but maybe we can you know, choose another translation for home and just say people. We call the yeah. home for, for all people. Mm-hmm. For all people. Maybe we can do that. So I raised these two verses as objections, and I tried to show that at least we can argue that these are not strong evidences against what I'm saying. Now, people may agree with the way that I explained them, or they may disagree with that, but that doesn't change the fact that, as you see, it is arguable, right? Uh, Now, I want to make the last point about this assumption. Let us assume that somebody disagrees with what I'm saying and says, no, actually, uh, I, I disagree with you. Basically, what these mean is that God literally has sent messengers and prophets by the definition that we have from the Abrahamic religions to all the nations. If somebody says something like that, then the problem is that not you and not me, but at least non-Muslims, then easily question the validity of the Quran. Because that is something that is not factual. That is something that we know we cannot find it in the history. Mm-hmm. I again remind people that look, when we say Rasul, this is not easy function 
Rasul, according to the Quran. Rasul, those who know the difference between Rasul and Nabi, know this point, that Rasul goes to a community, warns them, and then the punishment of God comes for people who rejects him. And this punishment comes either by forces of nature or by Rasul and his companions fighting with those rejectors. This is not something that you can easily miss in the history. So if we then say Likul Ummat Rasul means that every, every group of people, every community had Rasul, then that means we should be able to find in the history that every group of people, every community, South America, different places in South America, North Alaska. America, Alaska, every place, Iceland. <laughs> every place, every place, we should see that they had a mini, a mini way of judgment in their history. Something drastically happened. Some significant disaster came from them, or it happened that they all became so good and so monotheist and followers of God's religion that no punishment came for them. That is not the case. So if you think that, no, the way that I interpret these two verses is wrong, but then the responsibility will be on your shoulder to make peace between your interpretation of these two verses and facts of history. And I think that's a tough job. So I said that the first assumption was God only guides people by prophets, and I said, I reject this assumption. Then I said, the second assumption when I reject that will help with rejecting the first one. So the second one was God has sent prophets to all nations. Okay? Mm -hmm. By knowing and accepting that, no, actually that is not true. God has not sent prophets to all nations. That itself tells us. So therefore, there should be other means of guidance for other nations. Otherwise, how can we continue to say God is just and wise and all-knowing? Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, if we accept that, okay, I agree. People in South America, North America, Africa, Russia, China, they never had a prophet. Australia, they never had a prophet, right? Uh, prophets only came in this region. And then if I say the only way that God guides people is by prophets, what is the conclusion? The conclusion is that God did not mind, uh, did not mind guiding the rest of the world, just concentrating right. on this part. And if your answer is going to be, well, yes, God just, just concentrated on this part so that they would go and guide the other people, well, I think we should then say that it was a failed design. If that is your understanding, it's a failed right. it would design. Be, it would be a very narrow pathway to connect with God, and then a large section of humanity would be excluded. It just wouldn't make sense. Exactly. Why would God not send prophets to all communities and all nations? So, I rejected two assumptions. Are you ready for the third one, or do you want to say yes, something? Yes, I'm ready. Right. The third one, the prophets who brought Sharia, or the law, in fact, they abrogated the Sharia of previous prophets. Mm -hmm. I want to say that this assumption is true and false, depending which prophet you are talking about. If you talk about prophets came for the same community, then this seems to be true. So yes, you can say that, for instance, 
Musa, Moses, brought Sharia for Bani Israel, for Israelis. And then Jesus, Hazrat Isa, he came and he abrogated some of that Sharia. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think you can get that from the Quran as well. So that assumption about the same community is true. But this assumption is not true when you look at two communities. The assumption that the Sharia that Prophet Muhammad وسلم, brought came to abrogate the Sharia that was given to the Bani Israel. I question this assumption. And I argue that the Quran itself goes against this. So number one, you do not find single verse in the Quran that invites people of the book to adopt the Sharia of Prophet Muhammad. Please do pay attention to the wording that I am using. I did not say that the Quran does not invite people of the book to believe in Prophet Muhammad. I said the Quran does not invite people of the book to adopt the Sharia of Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Believing in one thing, Sharia is something else. In Surah Jen, it says that Jen believed in Prophet Muhammad. Does that mean that Jens are not following the Sharia of Prophet Muhammad? That doesn't make sense. And I just want to interject really quickly in case any listeners have not listened to previous episodes and they may not be familiar that here Sharia is being used to represent divine law for a specific community of a prophet, not the Sharia that's specifically associated with Islam, but with whatever divine law was present at the time or given by a prophet. Yes. Like, like a kosher lifestyle for Jews, for example. Thanks, Veronica. That was a good point. Um, so I summarize. The prophets that were sent to the same community, and here that will be Bani Israel, they did abrogate some of the rules given by the prophets before them. But a prophet that was sent to one different community had nothing to do with abrogating the rules for another community. And here I'm talking about our prophet, Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, and communities of, for instance, Bani Israel. And what I said was that, yes, you can find in the Quran verses that says you, you need to believe in Prophet, but that is different from you need to adopt the Sharia of the Prophet. These are two mm -hmm. different things, okay? Uh, and I have explained that in more detail in my article. And also, please do consider that even where it says you need to believe in Prophet, it is talking with people in Arabia at the time, the people of the book in Arabia at the time. It is not talking with the people of the book of the whole world. He's talking with the people of the book in Arabia who were addressed directly by the prophet. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, Veronica, I would like you to, if you can, please read some verses of the Quran for us, if you can. If you can introduce us from whose translation you read this. If you can go to the chapter 5 of the Quran, so that is Surah Al-Ma'idah, chapter 5. Mm -hmm. And if you can read first 43, please. Okay. So I'm looking at the Abdullah Yusuf Ali translation, which is a very classic translation. Maybe the language is, uh, the English translation is a bit traditional, but it's nice. I think for the purposes of this, it will work. So you asked me to read 43. Yes, please. But why do they come to thee for decision when they have their own Torah before them? 
Therein is the plain command of Allah, yet even after that they would turn away, for they are not really people of faith. Yes. So a group of people from Bani Israel or Jewish community in Medina, they went to the Prophet in hope that the Prophet may give them a slightly lighter uh, ruling for a matter that they wanted some ruling about. And the verse of the Quran objects to them. It says, why, why do you go to the Prophet when you yourself have Torah with you? And mm-hmm. in which there is Hukmullah, the ruling of God is there. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, if the Jews were supposed to leave aside their Sharia and follow the Sharia of Prophet Muhammad, then this verse would have not said to them, why don't you go to the Torah? Mm-hmm. Yes, the verse could still question their intentions. Yeah, the verse could say that your intentions are not genuine. You are not honest people. You are not going to the Prophet because you really want to learn from him. You are just looking for lighter ruling here. But it wouldn't tell them, why don't you go back to what you already have, in which there is ruling. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, Veronica, same chapter. Can you read verse number 47, please? Okay. Let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah hath revealed therein. If any do fail to judge by the light of what Allah hath revealed, they are no better than those who rebel. Okay. So it says the same thing to people of gospel, Christians. You know, you need to go and act according to the gospel, according to what find what you find there. Okay. A bit of historical note here. Uh, the historians, the biblical historians can tell you that there is no difference or no significant difference between the version of Bible, the version of Torah and Injil that was existing at the time of the prophet and the version that we have today. There's, there was no significant difference between the two. So no one should think that, oh, maybe they had something that they don't have it now. No, no, whatever we have today, they had it at that time as well. It was not much significant difference between the two. These verses are very clearly by saying that you need to go and follow your own books. And of course, I could bring more verses in the Quran, in Surah um, uh, Baqarah and Ali Imran, that encourages people of the book to go and learn from your own books, etc. Right? Now, in the same chapter, uh, so one verse says to the Jews, go and learn from your own book. One says to the Christians, go and learn from your own book. Now we have the pinnacle of this, the star of this, the concluding remark. Why? Why should each one of them go and learn from their own book? Why? Verse 48 explains that. Can you read that part? Yes. To thee we sent the scripture in truth, confirming the scripture that came before it and guarding it in safety. So judge between them by what Allah hath revealed and follow not their vain desires, diverging from the truth that hath come to thee. To each among you, we have prescribed a law and an open way. If Allah had so willed, he would have made you a single people, but his plan to test you in what he hath given you. So strive as in a race in all virtues. The goal of you all is to Allah. It is that he will show you the truth of the matters in which ye dispute. Very good. Can you read the part that says, uh, to each one of you, we have given your own path, something like that. Can you read that part again? Mm -hmm. 
To each among you we have prescribed a law and an open way. If Allah had so willed, he would have made you a single people. But his plan is to test you in what he hath given you. Okay, so see, this verse clearly explains the verses 43 and 47. The reason you are asked to follow your own book is that God never wanted all of you to be one community, to follow the same Sharia. God wanted you to follow your own Sharia. For each one of you, God has given your own way. Shir'atan wa minhaja in Arabic, in the verse, original verse. Shir'atan wa minhaja. For each one of you, there is your own way that you need to follow. If God wanted to unite you, he would have done that. He didn't want that, right? So hereby, I question and I reject assumption number three. That is, prophets who brought Sharia abrogate the Sharia of the previous prophets. I reject this partial. So I accept that assumption when the prophet is going to the same community. And I reject that assumption when we are talking about two different communities. Is that clear, Veronica? Mm-hmm. Okay. Assumption number four. The prophets were sent to guide entire human being. Okay. I reject this assumption. And the basis of my rejection, not only the history, but the Quran. And I just keep, keep the Quran part here. First of all, you read the Quran, you will find that Quran itself says, it says Musa and Esau to Bani Israel. Their mission was about Bani Israel, people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel. Nowhere in the Quran it says anything to say that, okay, now you Bani Israel, you need to go and guide the entire human. You don't have it. As far as I know, I'm not a Jewish scholar, but as far as I know, Jews also do not believe in that. Okay? Jews also do not believe that all these rules and these things are for, for every human being. No, no, they say that there are many, many rules for us, but for the mm-hmm. entire human being, there are those Noahic, uh, what they call it, the rules that are originated from Noah in Abrahamic religions. That are common, obvious principles of morality. As for Christians, again, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I do know that there is a debate among them because there are some verses in Bible that suggests that Jesus said, do not propagate this among Gentiles and just go for the lost sheep of Israel. And then there are some verses that can be interpreted as if Jesus says, no, go and say to the whole world. So there's a debate there. So at least we don't have a strict understanding. In the Quran, it is very obvious. As I said, it says very clearly, there's, there's absolutely no indication in the Quran that says Musa came with a mission to expand this message to the whole world. Jesus did not have that according to the Quran. It was all for Bani Israel. What about Prophet Muhammad? Veronica, can you please read uh, chapter 6, verse 92? And this is a book which we have sent down, bringing blessings and confirming the revelations which came before it that thou mayest warn the mother of cities and all around her, those who believe in the hereafter believe in this book, and they are constant in guarding their prayers. Okay. So the mother of cities and all around her, which is the translation that we got there, is translation of this 
these wars. لِتُنْزِرَ So that you warn. أُمَّ الْقُرَى وَمَنْ حَوْلَهَا أُمَّ الْقُرَى means mother of cities and uh, I think all professors of the Quran agree that that is Mecca. وَمَنْ حَوْلَهَا means people around it. People around Mecca. So it actually basically means Arabia. Uh, yes, there have been some professors that says, no, actually, Umm al-Qura is Mecca, and Waman Hawlaha means the whole world, because the whole world is around Mecca. Uh, I leave it to the audience, whether they feel comfortable with this translation. What uh, the translation and the interpretation that you get from most professors, and I think is in line with the wording, is that it is Mecca and what is around it, which is basically in Arabia. Uh, this translation, not only its direct translation of the words without injecting any interpretations, but also another evidence for this translation is the emphasis on, of the Quran on its Arabic. That over and over it says we have sent this Quran in Arabic so that you can understand. So it, it's very clear that it's talking about people, people in Arabia. Can you please read Veronica chapter 43, verse 44? Chapter 43, verse 44. Yes, please. The Quran is indeed the message for thee and for thy people, and soon shall ye be brought to account. Okay. For you and for your people. Leka balakaumik. We went back to this word kaum here. For you and for your people. Laka wala kaumik. I'm asking you, Veronica, are Chinese among the kaum of the prophet? No. Are Americans among the kaum of the prophet? No. No. Spanish? No. No. Okay. Um, please go and read chapter 14, verse 4. Okay. We sent not a messenger except to teach in the language of his own people in order to make things clear to them. Now Allah leaves astray those whom he pleases and guides whom he pleases. And he is exalted in power, full of wisdom. Okay. Can we read the first part again about, la about language? We sent not a messenger except to teach in the language of his own people in order to make things clear to them. Okay. The Arabic is Wama Arsalam in Rasul Illa Bilisan Kaumi, the Yubayyanala. We are not we haven't sent any messengers, but with the language of his own people, so that people can understand, so that people can see. Uh language of the prophet. Was it Chinese or Spanish or Arabic? Arabic. It was Arabic. Okay. So you can again see here when it says, uh, no one can say, well, you know, maybe everyone who becomes Muslim is from the home of the Prophet, from people of the Prophet. Yeah, in a conceptual way, yes. But technically in the language of the Quran, no. Because see the emphasis on lisan language. Okay, so it's Arabic. It's again about people in Arabia at the time. The first verse that I asked you to read when we were talking about Assumption 4 was the verse that says, I asked you to read 
one of the places where you can find this verse. I want to ask you if you can read this again, 42.7. Thus have we sent by inspiration to thee an Arabic Quran, that thou mayest warn the mother of cities and all around her and warn them of the day of assembly, of which there is no doubt. Should I continue? No, that's fine. So you see, People in Mecca, mother of cities, and those around. As I said, literal understanding of it, I think anybody can appreciate that when it says that doesn't mean the entire world. It means people around Mecca, the literal translation of the words. However, if somebody wants to insist that no, actually, can be the whole world, because the whole world is around Mecca, then I invite the attention of that person to the start of this verse. It says, وَكَذَلِكَ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ قُرْآنًا See the ta'kid, see the emphasis on the Arabic nature of the Quran. So it says we are sending it in this language so that you can warn people in Mecca who have that language and people around it, which is then in line with other verses of the Quran, which you just read, that says we send messengers with the language of their own people. Okay? Now, mm -hmm. I need to explain two things here. Number one, you have a verse in the Quran, for instance, that says that uh, we are sending you uh, so that uh, that is Surah Al-Furqan, chapter 25, verse number one. I will not uh, translate it myself. I will read from Pictol, for instance. It says, Blessed is he who hath revealed unto his slave the criterion that may be a warner to the peoples. Now, as you can see, Pictol has translated Alameen as peoples, people with S. Alameen can also be translated as entire world. So, for instance, in Surah Ham, you say, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Uh, praise to God, the Lord of entire world or all the worlds. So somebody can object that, okay, but hang on, why don't you say something about this verse? Okay, I've already written about this verse in detail in that article, so people can look at this in detail where I have brought evidences in tafsir and books of Loga, and I've explained that verse. However, here, for the sake of being brief, all I want to say is that do consider that if you say Alameen here is the entire word, then you are saying that Quran has contradictory statements in it. Because in two verses, it says, you are sending this for people of Mecca and around it. It says Rasul comes with the language of its own people. It says every Rasul comes from his own people. And then suddenly here, it says this is for all human beings. This is contradiction. You cannot say God changed his mind. Na'udhu God forbidden. We cannot say that. You cannot even say that, well, that was a gradual explanation of the mission of the prophets. Because those verses that talk about the Tunzara Ummul Quran and Hawlaha, you're saying this was the reason that the Quran was revealed. It doesn't say that, well, one of the things you can do is this. And by the way, there are other things that we will reveal to you later. And also mm -hmm. do consider that if you look at the order of revelations of the verses, the verse that you just read and has the word Alameen, has come before those two verses that says, Ummul Quran and 
So it's not even gradual explanation of the mission. Alameen here means entire people. Entire people were in Arabia. Again, we are talking about uh, a very specific platform and the language of the Quran that is specific for its addresses. Uh, so all the verses that talk about Alameen, talk about Nas, Kafa, all these verses, we need to understand them uh, within this premise that I uh, showed you from the other verses of the Quran. And I have explained that in that article. The second thing I, I need to emphasize here. So am I saying that, oh, Veronica, you are from Spain, so why you are a Muslim? Huh? Or my fellow Iranians, people from Pakistan, why you are Muslim? Islam came for Arabs. I'm not saying that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with embracing Islam by other nations. There's nothing wrong with that. These are two different things. To say that originally for whom this book came is one thing. And then to accept that practically many can embrace the same religion and benefit from this book is something totally different. So in no way I'm trying to question or object that, oh, why other people are Muslims? No, it's actually very good that other people are Muslims. In fact, if you, if you look at the history of Islamic scholarship, you will find that most of the scholars and most significant scholars of Islam were not even from Arabia, from the original Arabia. They were from other countries. Many of them, for instance, were from Iran. Some of them were from Spain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that is not what I'm saying, and I hope there is no misunderstanding here. I think it is wonderful that Islam now has a um, multicultural variety of followers from all different cultures, all trying to learn Arabic and understand the Quran. This is wonderful. This is the strength of, of this religion. But understanding what the original mission was is important, and one of the importance of that is for understanding the religion itself and understanding the book itself, okay? Mm -hmm. That was assumption number four. So the fifth assumption is that there's only one correct understanding of God and hereafter and unseen. Rejecting this assumption comes actually natural if we question the first four assumptions. Because if we appreciate and understand that sending prophets is not the only way that God guides, if we appreciate that God has not sent prophets to every community and every people, if we appreciate that every community, every people who were given some sort of Sharia had to follow their own Sharia, and if we appreciate that prophets were not sent for the entire human being, the outcome of that would be that we should then prepare ourselves to appreciate and understand that there can be different reflections and different understandings about the truth. The truth here referring to whatever we cannot see, which is God hereafter, and everything that we may refer to as unseen. No longer we can say that one understanding of the truth is, is the correct understanding. So I want to talk very briefly without being too technical or philosophical about the concept of negative theology versus positive theology. Are you familiar with that concept, Veronica? No, I'm not. Can you explain okay. that? Yeah. So positive theology is theology 
that is based on this assumption that you can actually understand the unseen to some significant degree. And therefore, you can make absolute statements about God and say, this is God, right? So you can say, God can hear, and God is the one that created us, and was always there from the beginning, etc., etc., etc. And this is truth, and this is the whole truth. Okay? That is positive theology. Negative theology goes against this. Negative theology says that you cannot understand God and unseen uh, to a reasonable level. Therefore, all statements that you can make about God will be negative statements rather than positive statements. So you can say God is not weak. God will not get tired. These are definitely correct. But once you start describing God, you are limiting God. Because as a human being, you can never describe God. I want to argue based on some discussions, based on the verses of the Quran that is beyond this episode, that the theology that Quran presents us is closer to negative theology rather than positive theology. For those who may want to study this in more detail, I encourage you to look at the application of the word subhan and tasbih, glorifying in the Quran, versus application of the word hamd, praising in the Quran. And uh, I'm more than happy to discuss this with anyone. I'm not associating the Quran with any particular theology, but if we have to choose between the two, what I'm saying is that the Quran gives us more impression of a negative theology rather than positive theology. The Quran says every time that you don't understand, you don't know, you will not be able to understand when people are asked about what is ruh. And ruh here is different from ghost. What is ruh, the Quran says, say that it is something that, that only God knows. Uh, In English, it would be spirit, more or less. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, spirit, soul. Well, well uh, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not referring to the spirit of human being. It's referring to something else. But yes, okay, sorry, I said Hazam and Amrabi, I correct myself. But yes, you ask me about the Ruh, that is a matter that relates to God, to your Lord, to my Lord, when Prophet says that. And of knowledge, you have been given only very limited. You have only very limited knowledge. We do know the uh, concept of motishabe uh, heart, the verses of the Quran are motishabe, um, ambiguous, and we know that these are verses that refer to that unseen aspects. These can simply cannot come in the language of human being. So when God describes them, they're called ambiguous because what you see, those words, are not exactly literally what was meant, but there's no way for human being to see this in the language of human being. And then you have this ultimate, ultimate verse of the Quran that says, Nothing is like, like him. The meaning of think about it this way, Veronica, whatever understanding about God that you have, this mm-hmm. verse negate that. and mm-hmm. says, There's nothing like him. Unless your understanding comes with negative statements, 
negative theology. Unless you say, uh, God does not do bad things. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. But even when you say God only does good things, yeah, you are still limiting your understanding of God. And the verse says, like second station, nothing is like God. You see, in our language, when we talk about God, some of the questions that we ask, these questions themselves, well, as students of the Quran, we try to answer and explain them. But if you think about it, these questions themselves are limiting God. For instance, does God know the future? And of course, then we say, oh, of course, God knows the future. Oh, if God knows the future, then, then this, then that. But the fact is, the dimension of time was created by God himself. God is not bound by time the way that we think about it. So the question itself is limiting God. God did this so that, the moment we say so that, you are limiting God. Because you are saying that just like us, God needs to plan something so that something happens. You are limiting God. So the moment that we start talking about God with positive statements, the moment we start doing that, we are limiting God. Now, of course, we are human beings. We need to talk about God. So there's nothing wrong about talking about God with our own language. But at the end of the day, we need to know, like second station, nothing is like it. If we appreciate that point, then what I'm trying to say is that the God that is introduced to us in Abrahamic religions and all the unseen that has been introduced to us by Abrahamic religions, like angels, like what happens in the hereafter, all of that is one take, one reflection of that ultimate truth that is out there. There can be other takes as well. There can be other reflections as well. Um, understanding of Abrahamic religions from God, for instance, is an understanding that makes God a personal God. This is also understanding that comes from Hindu religion. In fact, in Hindu religion, they make it personal and also human-like God. This is not the only understanding that is reflection of that truth. Another reflection of that truth can be a non-personal God, like Buddhists. The Buddhists have non-personal God. If you ask a Buddhist, do you have a God? They say no. But they also have belief in something beyond this materialistic thing that they are seeing. But they do not refer to it as God because it is for them, it's like impersonal God. So what I'm trying to say is that the followers of true spiritual paths and what true spiritual path is, we'll need another episode that we will not have, but the followers of true spiritual paths may have different understanding of the truth. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as this understanding helps them to work on spiritual purification, because that is what is important. Mm -hmm. okay? Now, you believe that if I'm not a good person, I may end up in hell, or you believe that if I'm not a good person, then I may need to return back to this world to try again. Or if I'm not a good person, then I may come back to this world in a bad situation. All of that suggests that the way that we live in this world affects our existence and the way that we exist after our death. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the difference if you believe that, oh, that is about heaven and hell or any of other those things? As long as it helps you, encourages you to purify your spirit, then that's what God wants from you. And that's the reason. That's the reason that we have in the Quran, in Lazina Amen, Wal Lazina Hadu, Wasabim, Wannasam. من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وعمل صالحا فلا خوف عليهم ولا هم يحزنون. This is in Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah number two, verse number sixty-two. We have similar verse in, in Surah Al-Maidah as well. Uh, those who believe, which means followers of Prophet Muhammad and the Jews and the Sabians, uh, which was a religious group at the time, and Nasara Christians in Arabia, any of them who believe in God and the hereafter and does righteous deeds, then there will be not any fear for them or any grief for them, right? Um, sorry, the version that I read was actually the version Surah Ma'ida, verse number 69. And then similar uh, similar verse with very slight difference is in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse number 62. Um, pay attention at the, what Quran wants from us. The Quran wants spiritual purification. In one word, what is the criteria for salvation? Spiritual purification. And then when it breaks it down, what helps with this spiritual purification? What are the features of this spiritual purification? Believe in the Almighty. Now you may have different understandings of this Almighty. You may have different reflections of what this Almighty is. But believe that there is something beyond what my eyes can see, and then uh, believe in the hereafter. It doesn't even say believe in hell and heavens. Believe in hereafter. Yeah, believe that death is not undoing righteous things. This is what God wants from us. Mm-hmm. So, Veronica, if you think about it this way, then you see, um, somebody may listen to what I just said in this episode and may then think that, oh, and what you are saying, you are actually limiting the function of the Quran because you are saying the Quran came only for Arabs. And yes, it is good that we are followers of the Quran, but originally it came from Arabs. Actually, the way I see it, I'm actually expanding the function of the Quran. What I'm saying is that, look, that Sharia part, Quran demands us demands that only from Muslims. Yeah? But there is another level in the Quran that has the function of reminding you about spirituality. That is for the whole human. Every human being can use it. Mm-hmm. So if I did give this Quran to my neighbor, I'm not giving it to my neighbor with the hope that hopefully you will become Muslim. No, no. I don't care if you want to become Muslim or not. If you follow your own religion as it is working for you, that's perfect. Keep doing that. But this is a spiritual book. It can help you in your own path. Just as when I read Gospels, for instance, there are many verses that encourages me, and I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. Just like when I read some Buddhist uh, writings, it really helps me, but I'm I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. I I recognize this is not my book. I recognize that is not my way. But there are lots of things that can help me in my own path as a Muslim. So I'm expanding, actually, the function of the whole. I'm not limiting it. I'm not conditioning it. Okay, I'm giving you this book. 
But hey, you really can benefit from it if you become Muslim. And by the way, if you read it, and if you do not become Muslim, then I have clarified the message for you. So then you will be in lots of trouble in the hereafter because I have explained things for you. What is this way of thinking? No, it's not about converting. It's about benefiting. It's about using. So in that way, I want to say, and this is something that I need to write about it somewhere, but I want to say, the Quran has a number of functions. I want to mention three of them. And want to say that for each one of these three, a particular group are the specific utterances. The Quran has a Sharia. The Quran has warning in Zar, and Quran is a reminder, Tazkir. So I go through these in this order. In Zar, which is warning, the warning of the Quran was for the people at that time, Arabs, and the people of the book in Arabia at the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. The consequence of that warning was some punishments that some of those people received in line with the tradition of the Almighty in the Abrahamic religions that he sent messengers to communities. So warning or inzar was for Arabs and the people in Arabia at the time. Then another level, Sharia, the rules. And here when I say Sharia, I actually talk about the whole corpus of Islam, the whole system of Islam, all beliefs. That is for all Muslims, Arabs, non-Arabs, Spanish, German, American, Iranian, Pakistani, as long as you are Muslim, this Sharia is for you. Of course, we have talked about dynamic Sharia, but that, that's another subject. But basically, this Sharia is for you. And then Tazkir, Zikr, reminder, that is for all human beings. That is for all human beings. And I don't say it in this way that, oh, so therefore it is our responsibility to go and this Quran to everybody to say this is a reminder for, this was sent as a reminder for you. No, no, no. This wasn't sent as a reminder for, for those people. The Quran itself says that this is for you, this is for primary addresses. But the function of being reminder works for everyone. So if somebody is interested in spiritual purification and looks for many sources, Quran can also be a very significant source for that person. So these are the, those two terminologies that I used in my article. General universality of the Quran and specific universality of the Quran. I appreciate this is not a very good terminology. I, I do know that you have criticized my choice of words here, but I'm also happy that when I asked you, do you have any alternative? You said no. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so till the time that you give me better words, I'm going to I, keep. I do have some alternative terms, but not ones that you would probably apply. Just terms okay. that are helpful okay. to me. Okay, so let, let me explain what I mean by this. So, what I mean by specific universality of the Quran, specific here, I mean all the specifics of religion, of Islam. So specific universality of the Quran is the belief that all the aspects of religion of Islam, including the, the Sharia, uh, was sent for the whole human being and is applicable to whole human beings. So obviously, I do not agree with that. So I do not believe in specific universality. A very, that would be a very literal interpretation, thinking that yes. everybody needs to convert to Islam eventually, or if yes. people were aware or their eyes were open 
they would recognize that this this is the path to God for me the same way that some Christians believe that only Jesus can save you. Sort of that same so idea. I disagree with that. General universality of the Quran, by general, I mean that generic message of the Quran, the message of spirituality of the Quran, the same thing that I refer to as a reminder. That, of course, that is applicable to all humans. So anybody who wants to get some help for spirituality can also look at the Quran and get some help from the Quran as well. So I do believe in general universality of the Quran, but I do not believe in specific universality of the Quran. And by believing in general universality of the Quran, I argue that actually I am expanding the application of the Quran beyond Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. That's the end of what I want to say. So, see, I would call that the transcendent message or something like this, because within the Quran, there is a power, a transformative power. If you're able to get through the language barriers and the, the cultural barriers, and that's why some people choose to convert to Islam, because they, they tap into something that's extremely useful for them. Okay. It gives them a structure. But then conversely, the problem that they have is they fall into what you call the specific university of the Quran. I call that sort of the narrow messaging where you end up getting trapped within the cultural and the historical context. And you, you cannot extract that benefit without getting trapped within that Sharia, which can become so heavy and so complex and so literal. Um, so what you're saying is that there is a, a rich mes- message in there that can be liberated and that can be useful for anybody that wants to use it, however they want to use it, without having to convert or converting if they want and converting and then becoming the Muslim that they feel is the best version of them without having to follow a specific school of thought or a specific scholar or something like that. I mean, these are my words. These are not your words. Yes, but I think you said that clearly. This is the last episode. So let me say the last word very clearly, just to take away any doubt about what my understanding is. I do not believe in this thing that people call it dava for inviting people to convert to Islam. I do not believe in it. I think the whole concept of dava has been misunderstood. Quran does not want people beyond Arabia to convert to Islam. That was not the case. It is wonderful that now many nations have converted to Islam. I'm not saying why they did that, but this is not the scheme of guidance of Almighty. Almighty has given every every nation, every group, their own way of, their own spiritual way to follow. Um, if it is Dava, which is inviting, the Dava and inviting needs to be for spirituality and for morals. Uh, a Christian can do a Dava for a Muslim, which then does not mean that you need to convert to Christianity. That would mean, as a Muslim, this thing that you are doing is wrong. Dawah meaning proselytizing. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, a Muslim can invite a Christian to do Dawah, but that does not mean that you need to convert to Islam. That means, as a Christian, this thing that you are doing is wrong. So Dawah has nothing to do with bringing somebody from this camp and putting him in a different camp. It's mm-hmm. not about that. It's not about grouping and cross-grouping and things like that. Yeah, it's not about changing football teams. It's about being the best example that you can be. And by being that good example or explaining things that are useful, then you can help other people who are on a exactly. similar journey. 
Exactly. And I would say <clears throat> for Muslims, and in fact for every community, <clears throat> the main emphasis of Dawah, the focus, should be Dawah for our own people, Muslims themselves. If opportunity comes for me to see some somebody is doing something wrong and, and I want to perhaps help him not doing that, I can always do that. But there's enough among every community themselves to focus on their own people for correcting them and helping them, that people may not find time to go to other communities and try to do something somewhere else. Yeah, that's it. That's me. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for that explanation. And I do think people that are interested in this article that haven't read it should go check it out. I find it to be a very liberating message. So with that, thank you, Farhad. It's been such a wonderful journey with you on this podcast. I'm so honored that we've done this together. And I hope other people have benefited too from our conversation. So thank you, Veronica. It was a pleasure. And again, thank you very much for the opportunity and for discussions that you brought and guest speakers and good questions that you asked. And uh, I hope that people find it helpful. Thank you. All right. Salamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us as we conclude this amazing podcast journey. We will continue to welcome feedback at onelightchat at gmail.com. That's O-N-E-L-I-G-H-T-C-H-A-T at gmail.com. Or you can still leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash Veronica Polo. Peace and blessings, and may you all have an amazing spiritual journey full of light and growth.